The, um, it's always interesting when the gospel lesson ends really on a word of judgment. And, um, and sometimes we wrestle with that and says, wait, isn't this supposed to be the, the gospel, the good news? Well, today we're going to have an opportunity to, to again wrestle with the fact that the law and the gospel are all part of God's word, and they work beautifully together, although many times misunderstood. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. I would share with you again that word that comes from the book of Deuteronomy, the, uh, the fourth chapter, verse 9, in fact, where it says this. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your life and heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. This is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. So boys and girls... Um, some of you have already memorized the Bible passage from Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe you don't remember that that's where it's from, but it says this, for by grace you have been, anybody, saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest no one should boast. I know I didn't say it in the ESV, I'd be... I'd be eliminated from the legacy verse finals for that because I didn't get it exactly with the ESV, which I still need to work on. But we are saved by grace. Amen. But what is our relationship to the law then? And why is it that in our gospel lesson, Jesus points out all these commandments and, and sins that are contrary to the law and why in the Old Testament are we told you need to do these things, these statutes, and you need to tell them to your children and teach them also to your children's children? Well, any of you ever wanted to go to law school? Don't answer that question. Maybe some of you have or dream of it, but there won't be any degrees given out at the end of this service, but I thought we should maybe go through a little bit of review for basic law school, namely the law that occurs in God's word and according to his Old Testament and New Testament. And so the first thing I think is important for us to, to recognize is the fact that there are really three types of laws, at least three different types of laws that are described in the Old Testament. And it's important to distinguish between them, um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first of all, the... Uh, the moral law. That would be what you could simply say is the Ten Commandments. Those things that God has indeed written on the hearts and consciences of people. And from the beginning of time in every society, there's been this basic knowledge and understanding, the natural knowledge of God that we have that it would be wrong to take something that's not ours, that we are supposed to honor parents and others' authorities, and that we are not supposed to take, certainly, another person's life. Then 
the Old Testament speaks of many civil laws. Civil meaning those that affect us as a society. In the Old Testament, these were many, many laws that God gave to govern how the people of Israel were to conduct themselves. First of all, when they were in the wilderness, the wanderings of Moses 40 years, and then from then on, they dealt with everything from property rights to um, succession to what would happen if uh, one of your animals escaped and, and caused harm to somebody else and all of those things. We have tons of civil laws around us today. Everything from our traffic laws to our zoning laws to our election laws. All of these things are intended, hopefully, to make our society peaceful and to help it be organized and run in an orderly manner. We should honor and respect those who make those laws and who enforce those laws. Then finally, the Old Testament speaks extensively about what can be called the ceremonial laws. In a word, these would be the laws that govern the Old Testament worship life of the people. And I'll give you three examples of that. Namely, first of all, the sacrifices. If you read through the Old Testament, especially those first five books of Moses, you're going to, on the one hand, read about a lot of bloodshed. Namely, the blood of animals. God prescribed that when the people were to worship, they were to bring animals as sacrifices. Priests were to, in fact, offer them as sacrifices, use the blood in certain prescribed ways, and it was in that way that people's sins would be atoned for, and there you, therefore they could then be right with God until the next sacrifice needed to be offered. Another example of ceremonial law in the Old Testament was the Sabbath restrictions. You'll remember that the Sabbath was the day that God had said, you shall not do any work. And he even prescribed how many steps could be taken, what kind of things could or couldn't be done, and that worship was to happen on that day. And then finally, there were uh, some ceremonial laws regarding food and what you could or couldn't eat. Now, the reason that I take time to distinguish between moral and civil and ceremonial laws in the Old Testament is because of this. There can be, and I've heard it any number of times today, in our current society, those who would, well, basically look at Christians, perhaps like you and me, Bible-believing Christians, and say, you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Here, you're condemning certain ways of life and certain attitudes and behaviors and lifestyles, and you're saying that the Bible says, it says it's wrong, but look at all these laws in the Old Testament that you don't follow. Do you make sure that you only do this or only eat this kind of food or wear this type of clothing or so forth and so on? Well, what do you say? It's a great question. It's a legitimate question. But that's where the distinction between the types of laws is so important. In the case of the ceremonial laws of worship, we are taught and learn from God's word that in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the ceremonial laws have all been fulfilled. They no longer are binding. They no longer apply because Jesus fulfilled them all. Take, for example, animal sacrifices. 
We certainly don't think of animal sacrifice. The early Christians didn't think of early sa- of animal sacrifices anymore. Why not? Because all of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to the one and only sacrifice that would be needed, namely the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood covers us and cleanses us from all righteousness, whose blood marks our hearts so that the angel of death passes over once and for all and we are saved eternally. No more sacrifices. Similarly, with regards to the Sabbath restrictions. Now, granted, this gets a little more complicated and nobody said this would be easy because the Sabbath restrictions are connected, in fact, to one of the 10 commandments, aren't they? In fact, all of you would be able to join me in saying the third commandment. Let's make sure I got three fingers. Yes, the third commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So there you have the 10 commandments to which some have said the moral law says we are to worship on the Sabbath. And if you don't worship on the Sabbath, you are breaking the Sabbath. And we have Christian brothers and sisters and other denominations that insist on such things. So are we all lawbreakers? It's a great question. I told the Saturday night crowd, they were the only true worshipers because they were there on the Sabbath. Saturday was, in fact, the Sabbath. And um, so give a shout out to them because it was muggy in that church, believe it or not. Last night, are you kidding? And then thunder came through. It was amazing that they, they survived. But anyway, having said that, we come to realize that the element of the ceremonial part of the Sabbath law was also fulfilled by Christ. How do we know? How many times is it in the Gospels when Jesus does something on the Sabbath, heals somebody, his disciples pluck grains, heads of grain, and he gets accused of breaking the Sabbath? And what are some of his responses? He says, ultimately, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. And so... The early church, from the earliest of times, right after the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter, on that Sunday morning, when it came for them to say, we need to gather weekly, what better day to do it than a Sunday morning? And that's what they did. There is now a freedom of worship. Think of what Luther says in that explanation. Again, all of you who know your catechism, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Luther then says, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and God's word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. What does he say about what day we're supposed to worship on? Absolutely nothing. The Sabbath restrictions and the ceremonial aspect of that have been fulfilled in Jesus and we have Christian freedom to worship God with all of our hearts whenever and wherever God's people decide. And then take the food aspect. Now this is where our gospel lesson confronts us. Because we have this odd encounter where apparently there was a dispute going on about what foods people could or couldn't eat. And you'll recall, if you heard correctly there, that Jesus is saying, it's not what goes in. It's not the food that you eat that defiles a person, but rather it's what comes out 
of a person. Mark, the gospel writer, puts in that parenthetical statement. Thus he declared all foods to be clean. Jesus fulfilled yet that aspect of the ceremonial law. Now, it's good for us to also be reminded that with God's holy law, he has several uses. And this should sound familiar to some of you who maybe have just been through confirmation or adult instruction, or maybe you can remember this even from way back in your day. But there are three uses that we have identified and, and find it handy to think of in terms of how God's law is used. Maybe you remember it just from those letters. But the first one is that it's a curb. Now this is talking specifically about the civil law. God gives us the civil law and the governing authorities in order to do what he wants, namely that society can exist in peace and relative order and law abiding. If we didn't have that, it could be as you were like the Wild West, where everybody takes the law into their own hands. Thanks be to God that we have the civil laws that help us to lead peaceful and safe lives. The law, though, also serves as a mirror. Now, how many of you, when you get up in the morning, just love to go look in the mirror and see just how much beauty sleep you really got? Now, I, I've said this to others, there is some benefit to being visually impaired, trust me. I look fantastic in the mirror every morning. It's amazing. I, I look great. But for those who can see, usually that's not a good experience. You can see things that are wrong with your appearance, your hair, whatever it might be. And that's what the law does. When we think we're doing so great and we're pleasing God and he's got to be so proud of us, the law comes along and says, wait a minute, have you honored and loved God with everything that you have? And although you may have kept the letter of the law, have you kept the spirit of the law? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And all of a sudden, when we look into the holy law of God, we realize, oh my goodness, do I look awful. I need help. I need somebody to save me. And that's what the law is for, to point us to Jesus. And so we receive his grace and forgiveness and know that it's not on the basis of how we live, but on how he lived. And so that brings us to the third aspect of the law, and that is as a guide. That we now are on our way to heaven. God has put us here for a reason. How do we live and love God? Well, that's what his law is for. How do we know what pleases him? Well, he tells us. I want you to live a holy and decent life. I want you to love others. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to meet together as a worship. I want you to receive the gifts that I provide to you. I want you to pray for one another. Don't argue and quarrel and all of those things. These are all examples of the law and how we are to please God. So, having said all that, now we come to what Jesus says here and we want to see how is it that he says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He gave a whole list of things. Did you have those memorized? I didn't think so. I didn't either. 
But you see what he's got, these are things that defile a person that come out of our hearts and our minds, our mouth and our hands and feet. Notice what he says. We have, well, how many of you are guilty of this? Or this, or this, or this, or this, or this. I don't want to hear your answers here. Notice the commandments, fifth, sixth, seventh, ninth, and tenth. And then we get to some others. Are we guilty of deceit or sensuality? That means being in love with that which pleases our senses so much that we misprioritize our life. How about envy or slander, the eighth commandment? How about sinful pride and ultimately sinful foolishness? You see, the law still applies. We look at that mirror and we say, Lord, save me. The very one who came to fulfill the law, the very one who came to give his life is the one that speaks to you and me. When he was on the cross, he was indeed abandoned by his father. You remember the psalm that he quoted, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was completely defiled. Even his own father had to abandon him because he was so filthy and so defiled and impure that God could not do anything but completely punish and do away with the sin that he carried. And that now brings us to the good news. Because Jesus was defiled on our behalf, we no longer are judged in the same way by the law, but rather by the mercy and grace of God. Unfortunately, our sinful nature wants to kick back in to the merit system. In other words, for example, coming to worship this morning, why are you here? Are you here because you have to be? because you're told you need to be, that in order to please God, you've gotta come to worship and you've gotta show up because your parents say so or you have a guilty conscience that says, I've gotta go there. That's living according to the law. Or are you here today because you can't think of a better place to be on a Sunday morning? than to gather with God's people, to be here hearing the word of God, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and to experience the strength and fellowship that comes from the family of God. You see, when we turn the law into how we earn God's favor and show him that we are good boys and girls, then we have done one thing. We have turned our religion into a religion of the law. 
It's been said accurately that there are indeed only two religions in the world. In spite of all of the different names, there's only two religions. There's the one that's the religion of the law. You must do this and that. You must not do this and that. And if you do that, you please and earn the God's favor. And if you don't, you're in trouble. Maybe you can make up for it by giving extra works or doing this or that. It never ends. It cannot save. But, thanks be to God, we have the only religion that is the religion of the gospel. That you have been reconciled to God, that you are pleasing to him, that you are his children, no matter what, you're forgiven. And now, you want to fulfill the law. You want to carry out what God commands because you know that it's how you worship him. You know that it is pleasing to him and it's beneficial to you and everyone around you. It's an amazing thing, this law and gospel dynamic. It can be confusing and, and get mixed up certainly, but by God's grace, as we continue to seek and receive Jesus' love, we remain his faithful people. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.